everyone. Thank you yet again for being uh, at a new session on the full Omar Apologetics uh, channel. Today I have a very special guest, um, the real David, the real Matt White. Um, uh, like for those who would know, actually last month I did a session with the brother Jay. And there I asked him particularly on the uh, Eastern and Oriental Orthodoxy and particularly on Nestorianism. And uh, he, did, he gave an excellent answer, but uh, the person I have right here in front of me just leaves and breathes that particular subject. So, uh, and it, this is a particular thing that I would really want to delve into. And this whole session is uh, devoted to mainly the hypostatic union, the patristic history of it. And I will say also in advance, this will be a very technical one, because if this is something that is very new to you or uh, you didn't delve into, into it quite as much, this will become a very complex one. So also in advance, uh, you're warned. But um, Brother David, thank you uh, for being on the show with me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I appreciate being here as well. Then my, my first question is about, about you personally. How do you get into uh, orthodoxy, and particularly this subject? So my, my, me personally... Um, I always had an idea, like I always wanted to get into having a YouTube channel for something. I just didn't know for which. And once I became Orthodox, um, which is a whole different story, I was kind of just, I had a period where I just did nothing. And then I realized, you know, I got to, I got to take the faith more seriously. Uh, this was really after my baptism. I will even say that I started to take it a lot more seriously. And I started to start to read more patristic texts, etc. It was I kind of just start to get into the more very basic stuff myself. But as I was learning and growing in knowledge in these regards, uh, I was challenged by a lot. This is like more than two years ago. I think this is three years ago. I was challenged by like, I constantly saw a lot of people from, you know, from a Coptic or Syriac background constantly challenging us, basically calling us Nestorians and attacking our Christology. And I, I read their arguments against the Council of Chalcedon and, or Christology, and then like their, their interpretation of St. Kirill's Christology. And I realized that there are a lot of questions that came to my mind, right? Their arguments at that time sounded pretty well. And it kind of uh, forced me into like look, looking into answers. I asked a lot of questions for, uh, from people. Uh, I didn't really get any good answers. So I thought, you know, is, I guess, I guess, you know, or to, I, I guess there's something that's going to like challenge my fate now. So I decided if I'm going to, you know, make a decision, I'm going to have to read what these people say, right? I have to actually read the history. I have to actually get in the know on this topic in order to be able to make a decision. So I started reading Father John McGuckin's Kirill of Alexandria and the Christological Controversy. That's the first book I, I read. Then I read other books that relate to the Trinity and Christology, etc. It's really when I start to read the Severus of Antioch collection from Pauline Allen, I, I read that. That's when I kind of made my decision to stay orthodox and to also look into this issue more because um, what I'm going to basically say is that I read like eight, nine texts of, of Severus and I realized that I've been fed lies. I've been fed misinformation, 
right? There, there are some things that these people said that he believed that he actually rejects very clearly. And some other things that I didn't think about that was really interesting, but wasn't really acceptable in, in our Christology. So I first of all, first thing I realized that we're not teaching the same thing. That's, that's the first thing I realized that we have a, a fundamentally different metaphysic. And that's fine, right? I mean, it's not fine in the sense that, you know, it leads you to wrong conclusions, but it's like, okay, that's understandable. It's just that many people don't want to accept that from my experience. And so I kept reading more. I read the E.W. Brooks set. The one book I will really recommend, which is a secondary, uh, from a secondary scholar, is from Chestnut called The Three Monophysite Christologies, where she looks into Severus of Antioch, Philoxenus of Maboga, and Jer Jacob of Zurich. It's a very, it's a short book, but it's excellent. It excellently summarizes uh, really their Christology. And it's not, you know, some people say, oh, she, it says monophysite. So that's, that proves that she's wrong. Well, actually her view is very balanced, right? So she's not taking a, a biased approach. Her view is very balanced from my experience. And just reading through books like that. And I, I have a recommended reading list in my in my server that i can maybe even share like you can share it in your description or in the comment section yeah there's a massive like recommended reading list which is basically reading list i follow which was very helpful for me so if anyone's interested in this i can definitely recommend those books and i'm very certain that even if they don't understand some of the things that's going to be talked about here they'll definitely understand if they like just put a little bit of time into it into like researching the, the topics, etc. That's kind of like where I came from, basically. I the, the short version is um, I ended up, without my own consent, by the way, I ended up having to debate and discuss with um, a lot of severance. That's what I usually call them. I think that's the most correct way. There's a lot of severance, a lot of miaphysites, etc. I ended up debating them. I, I realized that I didn't know much. I lost debates, so I looked into the issue and then I decided, hey, you know, I want to I wanna debate your top dudes. And that's how I got to that state, basically. But um, yeah, I can, I can pretty much say. So I have, a, I have a video series exclusively on, the, on, you know, Oriental Orthodoxy. And I have a, another series, which is not about Oriental Orthodoxy. It's about history of Christian theology, where one of the videos touches exclusively on that topic so i have a lot of i do have a lot of videos and yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah a lot of videos covering that uh, topic so it's it might take a bit of a long time right so I'll, I'll try to kind of summarize things a lot more and try to approach this more from like a like from the perspective of explaining things rather than like arguing things because i think some people might be confused about what we believe and what we say. That's also another thing that I've noticed. So it might be helpful. Yeah. Yeah, because the, this subject is it's such a mystery, but it's also very a, a lot of a lot of things rest on it. My, my personal mm -hmm. conviction is that when um, that the, the doctrines are like bricks on top of each other, like the Trinitarian. Theology, Mariology, Ecclesiology, Soteriology, everything rests on each other. And a very prominent part is the hypostatic union, like mm -hmm. the, the one person, two natures kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
it's it's such important thing to at least have someone in front of you who at least can take his or her time to explicate in order just mm-hmm. just to debate and uh, a lot of people mm-hmm. have opinions on this and um, but at the same time as, as I just mentioned it's very important and um, the questions I have also had uh, the, the questions is is and the first one is what is the hypostatic union and what mm-hmm. is the biblical basis for Jesus having two natures? Okay, so, yeah, so as you said, you made an excellent point in the sense that soteriology, triadology, Christology, they all are connected with each other. So being wrong in one of them affects the rest of them, right? They're not separate topics that we can kind of pick and choose whatever we like. They're all, they're, they're connected within a set of uh, web of beliefs. So I think in order to kind of start talking about hypostatic union, we can, I think it's good to start from the Trinity, and triadic activities in order to understand what the incarnation is, because hypostatic union is really trying to explain what the incarnation is and in what way the, in what way God incarnated as man, so that we might become like God, as Saint Athanasius says. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in a basic sense, the Trinity is three persons, one essence. They're undiv- you know, they're undivided. They all share a common nature because they share a common nature and they're not divided they share the same will, activity, and mind, right? So the Trinity is three in persons, but they're one in energy, one in nature, one in power, one in will, one in mind, etc. So when we're talking about, for example, God creating the world, uh, that's a triadic. All activities, all divine acts are triadic, fundamentally speaking. It's from, as St. Basil the Great says in On the Holy Spirit, it's from the Father, through the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. And the point that I'm getting here is that the incarnation is a divine activity. And the thing with some people sometimes ask, you know, can the Holy Spirit become incarnate? Can the Father become incarnate? No. God becoming incarnate is a specific activity that is done in a specific triadic way. The reason why the Son is the one becoming incarnate is because all divine activities are done through him, right? In fact, this is even in scriptures, uh, St. Paul says that, Everything is from him and through him, right? By whom and through whom uses that terminology. And St. Basil the Great explains that to say that all you know, activities are through the Son and they're done in the Holy Spirit. Even the Creed says that the, that the Son became incarnate through Virgin Mary and the Holy Spirit, right? So the Holy Spirit kind of, you can say, completes the divine activity of incarnation. The Son is the one going through the incarnation and becoming man. And now God entering into creation god can enter into creation in different modes right uh the incarnation is not the first time god entered into creation right it is the first time and the only time he took on human nature etc but in the in the old testament when we talk about the the angel of the lord uh who spoke to the prophets abraham moses etc who said that god's name was in him that's the pre-incarnate logos uh, manifesting as a messenger because angel in the old testament means messenger right so it's not saying that it was an angel in the sense that you know the lowest order of the bodiless powers angel but it's the pre-incarnate son of god entering into creation through theophanies um talking to the prophets and you know exit i think exodus 33 is another example of this genesis has a wide variety of these examples but the the mode in which God entered into creation in the incarnation is very special and different because in this case, he took on an impersonal 
human nature. So he took on a human body and a human soul in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and he underwent a second birth, right? The first birth is his uh, generation from the Father, which is eternal, and now his second birth from the Virgin Mary, which is in time and place as a, as a human being, right? So he took on, without a mediator, as St. Athanasius says, human nature, and is now consubstantial with man, and according to his humanity, and consubstantial with God, according to his divinity. And so in the incarnation, when we speak of Christ having two natures, well, first of all, he's out of two natures, because he is composed out of the two natures of divinity and humanity, the person of Jesus Christ. But these two natures, they're not mixed, they're not confused, they're not separated, they're not divided, uh, they're not blended with each other. They still retain what they, they still retain their identity. They're, they're still what they are, even after the union, right? So they have become one, because that's what union means. They have become one in the hypostasis, that is the person of the divine logos, but they still are distinct from each other. And so are two. some people might ask, for example, how, how can they become united if they're still two? That's actually an argument from John Philoponus. And we will say, well, God is united. God is, God is unity, and he's still three hypostases. So even you will have to agree that you can have plurality and unity at the same time. And it's the same thing. The, the two natures are two. They're distinct, but they're not separate. And that's one of the biggest distinctions that we have with Nestorians is that Nestorians inadvertently have to admit that the two natures are separate in some way, shape, or form. We don't really say that. So what – and and the – and the unity of the Trinity is based on the identity of essence, right? Because they, they share the same essence. So what the three divine hypostases in the Trinity share is the same nature. Now with the person of Christ, this is, the, this is really a massive significance, uh, significant aspect of the hypostatic union is that now humanity and divinity share something in common. We, don't, we, we, did, we, did, we did not share anything in common before the incarnation, but now we do. We share something in common that is the divine hypostasis of the Logos. Now, the hypostasis of Christ, now the two natures, the divine nature and human nature in Christ, share something. That's the person, Jesus Christ. And so he is, as St. Paul says, he's the one mediator between God and man. That, that The one mediator verse, a lot of Protestants think that it's an ecclesiological verse. No, it's a Christological verse. It is about God and man being united and Christ taking on creation and recapitulating it in his person now that even gets gets in a much more detail as for saint maximus's theology which is by the way uh, biblical but to get the to the point that i want to make is that the the, the the hypostatic union is the union of the two natures in the hypostasis of christ and that's a very important detail because that's that's the part where we differ from the Severan position, whereas the severance believe that the hypostatic union is the union of hypostases, where there is one composite self-subsistent hypostase after union. We say that there's two natures being united in the hypostasis, and so it's a union according to hypostasis, according to St. Cyril of Alexandria. Now, in the, on, the, on the topic of the biblical aspect of this doctrine, well, I will say any uh, Bible verse that speaks of Christ doing something as man and doing something as God will show that because the the energies were because christ has a divine and human energy as well because he's human and god anything that shows that he does these activities or has those properties 
is evidence that he has those two natures. But one Bible verse that does explicitly touch on this topic is Philippians 2, 5, 11. Now, St. Justinian actually uses this biblical verse um, as one of his proof texts. This is where St. Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And, you know, then he goes on. The point is that, first of all, in patristic literature, the term form is synonymous with nature and essence. Uh, in fact, that's the term form is used in the Tom of Leo to mean nature essence. Even the, even the people who oppose the Tom of Leo understand that the term form means nature in that, in that tome. Whereas, you know, St. Paul, I think very clearly says that Christ, who was in the form of God, took on the form of a bondservant. So the, the, the form of the bondservant is the human nature, right? He took, he, he assumed us into his person and took on our condition and acted out the, really the, the, macrocosmic narrative of of human life through history and has reversed what adam has done which is you know fall into sin where he has reversed what adam has done by taking the passion to the cross and defeat defeated death by death all of this is connected and all of this i think vindicates the idea that we have to speak of christ being one hypostasis but he also has two natures and so he does human things in a, in, according to his human nature and divine things according to his divine nature, but there's an important qualifier is that he does human things in a divine way and divine things in a human way because the two natures are united to his person. This is the principle of uh, communicatio idiomatum, um, the exchange of properties in him. So now that human nature is deified, so the human nature does not stand alone in Christ, it is divine. It's a divine human nature, but it, when we say divine human nature, we don't mean it in the sense that human nature became divine nature. That will be idolatry. We're not saying that. What we're saying is that the human nature become, became deified so that all human nature, true God's divine grace, can become deified as well, which is the Athanasian uh, idea. What Paul says, for instance, in First um, Colossians 50, that he is the prototokos. He's the first of, firstborn, the first of his kind. And uh, many places it says that he is the head, uh, and we are the body, because when you see it as a birth, uh, Christ also says that at the second coming, it will be like a uh, birth for instance. When a birth happens, it first is the head, then it will be the body. Because if, mm -hmm. if we follow by him, then the process of theosis, we will become like him. That's the whole point. Theosis is where it all comes down to. But mm -hmm. What would you particularly say when, when, First off, you really need to be entrenched by the Bible in order to understand some this type of stuff. But when people, for instance, read like, uh, oh, on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Or he didn't know uh, the hour or he, or he didn't understand the victory. That was his, this divine nature glitching. Like at that moment, it just, uh, the divine nature just like glitched or didn't work. Or what would you respond to that? So first of all, the my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's just him re referring to Psalm 22. Yeah. So Psalm 22 is prophesying the crucifixion. Psalm 22, one literally starts with my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You'd think people making those kinds of arguments will actually <laughs> know those verses. I mean, in fact, Psalm 22, 16 talks about um, 
I believe they were like, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's again, it's explicitly prophesying the crucifixion and the whole point of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me is him taking on or uh, playing out our condition, right? He's not genuinely being separated from God as if that's not even something possible. We're talking about God. How can God be separated from God? That makes absolutely no sense. And uh, other verses like, I don't know the R, etc. Well, uh, I, the, I don't know the R verse from, is, is literally just him saying, I'm not going to tell you like what the R is, yeah. right? Like that's basically him saying, don't ask me. And, and it's like, you know, if someone uh, says to you, it's like, Hey, do you, Hey, can you like help me with this? It's like, I don't know, but you, you do know. It's just that you're not going to be, but it's, it's kind of like that. That's how the patristic analysis of it. But in the question of regarding, does the divine nature glitch out? That's pretty much impossible. If you're asking in regards thing, to that's the way how people interpret it. Because, because mm-hmm. when a lot of people they say like oh I went to uh, a Christian elementary school therefore I'm a theologian like they really mm-hmm. they don't entrench themselves into the Bible in order to understand what it's all saying but they do point yeah. out these like verses or objections and they all of a sudden like say like no he wasn't complete but like I do understand why the Nestorian uh, heresy uh, they, where they got the, their ground from saying that. Uh, mm. Instead of the, the one hypostasis, two persons, there are two persons. That's um, the, the, the way you put it just as before, that it is, um, how would you say it? The divine, he, he, in his human, he does it in divine way. With his divinity, he does it in a human way. Which I, yeah, and his human activities are done in a divine way and hum, you know, vice versa. Yeah. yeah, it's because it's because they're hypostatic united. So it's like, how can, I mean, we're still talking about one person. So, of course the identity his activities for example like being crucified dying on the cross that's not something god does right i mean god doesn't die but it's um there is something different about that death that you can distinguish it from normal human death which is its divine character because what happened after death is that he went to hades and preached the gospel there and opened up heaven right so there you know that's not an example of it uh walking on water right in fact that's a severus kind of uses this argument but i think he kind of misses the point he he makes the argument that um how can there be two energies in christ um it's like you know like walking is according to human nature uh doing it on water is according to divine nature but the divine nature doesn't have feet so if you want to separate you know how can how can god walk on water well I mean, that's a good argument. It's just that it doesn't argue against our position because we will say is that that's an example of the two natures cooperating with each other, which by the way, it's literally what St. Leo says, that the two forms cooperate with each other, right? So when they cooperate in all of the activities, there's still a divine mark in the human activity and a human mark in a divine activity. Another example will be um, turning water into wine, for example. Right, like you can, I don't know, like think of like him pointing to the uh, water and then becomes one. Like that's kind of a, like even if it's small, like you can st- you still get the idea that they're not separated from each other. And on the topic of you know why Nestorianism became a thing, hmm. I will say for I mean it's mostly metaf- there there is that reasoning, but it's mostly metaphysical because we have to realize that. 
the the kind of structure that Nestorius had in in his understanding of what theology is and his followers was actually completely different from how for example uh, Nestorius according to Nestorius the term God always picks out divine nature period if you use the term God you're referring to Trinity all the time there's absolutely you know in, in all senses whereas and, and that's why he rejected the, the term Theotokos right because if if the Virgin Mary is Theotokos and Theo always picks out the Trinity and only the Trinity, then that will mean that the Virgin Mary is the mother of the divine nature. Well, that doesn't make any sense, right? But once you distinguish nature and person, suddenly now, well, Jesus Christ is God, and he was born by the Virgin Mary, therefore the Virgin Mary is mother of God. That's the, that literally was the logic that a lot of people used. And so, but you can only use that logic if you distinguish nature and person, which is another kind of important aspect, an important reason why Nestorians were wrong. And there's a lot of things that go into this as well, I will definitely say. Um, and I will also add very minorly that I think a lot of, it's kind of a weird sidetrack, uh, side but I think a lot of Protestants have a very Nestorian view, even if they don't want to admit it, because uh, they deny some of the very crucial doctrines or sometimes they suggest that, you know, the penal substitution, et cetera, where, where Christ is separated from God as if something like that can even happen. You know, there's, there's a lot of really these minor Nestorian ideas in, in those Christologies. So it's, it's, it's a lot more complex than it looks like. Yeah. Great point. Greatly put. Greatly put, because I do sympathize somewhat with what Nestorius plane of thought, for instance, when the, the word concept fallacy happens, for instance, when the word theos is somewhere, it automatically, automatically is God. But when you say theotokos, like, uh, especially like the Protestant-minded people, they're like, no, 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 only that particular word can only derive to the, the mm -hmm. divine God, which I, I understand the zealousness, I do believe that comes from a good place but if it comes to explicating the doctrines for instance but you really do need to be careful with uh how you put things but when people yeah. are like all uh all butthurt when you use this, the, the wrong phraseology or the wrong words like even the word god in the bible is not a rigid designator as jay dyke put it like when it when it uses the word god is that particularly the trinity or the father the son or the holy spirit for instance it really depends on the particular context and yeah it's but i, I do by the way by the way the term theotokos is fundamentally biblical because in uh, luke 141 and 45 uh, mary is called the mother of my lord lord is a divine title Amen. But we don't necessarily say that Mary is like the, the fourth person of the divine God. That's not what we say with that. Well, uh, Maximilian Kolbe says that, but he's a Roman Catholic. <laughs> we don't say that. Yeah, absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. But I do wanted to ask you a, a bit more about the historical aspect. Um, what, were the, what, what can you tell about the, the schismatic moments between the Oriental church my mm -hmm. my armenian heritage and the eastern orthodox church if it comes to this issue okay so uh i suppose i'll start with apollinarius because it is kind of important he i think i think 
something that he does is actually very relevant to the to the con- to contributing to schism and it's very underplayed but um apollinarius was um someone that denied that christ had a had a human mind because if christ had a human mind that means christ was a human person and so he denied that christ was two complete natures and that he was fully divine but he was an his human nature was incomplete and it was in a sense completed by the divine mind that's kind of how he sees it in fact william i have a stream where i critique william lane craig's christology which is he admits this i'm not saying it. he admits that his christology is apollinarian so I have, a, I have a stream critiquing that, critiquing that view. Um, but Apollinaris was opposed in the Second Ecumenical Council, and this was in like the 380s, okay? And then you have, for like 40 years later, um, you have, and Apollinaris came from the region where the, the Antiochian Christologians came from, right? Like, uh, Laodicea. Well, there's Laodicea in Anatolia, but the Laodicea he came from was like around Syria, I believe, somewhere, somewhere around that. So then you have at that at the same time zone. That's not the correct word, but I think you get the point. You have people like Theodore of Mopsuesta, Theodore of Tarsus, who are what many will call proto-Nestorians. I mean, their Christology is literally Nestorian. I mean, that's kind of undeniable. Theodore of Mopsuestia was condemned in the Fifth Ecumenical Council posthumously. I mean, so we view him as a heretic too. Um, and that, then you get Nestorius who kind of was educated by them. But we need to make a note that not everyone they educated was evil. Like St. John Chrysostom was educated by, I believe, Diodor. And St. John Chrysostom was one of the greatest saints that we have in the East. And his Christology was absolutely not Nestorian. So... Uh, there's also that kind of important detail we need to we need to consider before we kind of uh, I don't know maybe make mistakes right. But you have Nestorius; he became patriarch of Constantinople in 428, and that's when he started to deny the term Theotokos. And when he started to explain why he denied the title Theotokos, uh, his Christology showed its weirdness, right? So Nestorius, for example, doesn't say. Oh, I believe there are two persons, human Jesus and the divine word of God. He doesn't say such a thing. But the point is his theology leads to that conclusion. That's the, that's the ground on which he was critiqued. And St. Kirill of Alexandria is the, is the main hero. He's the, saint, he's the saint in the story. But St. Kirill wasn't a Christological theologian. St. Kirill was primarily a biblical exegete and a Trinitarian theologian. In fact, he has many great Trinitarian works. Um, uh, minor detail he's one of the he, he's one of the most quoted fathers from saint gregory palamas when he's trying to prove uh, the distinction between god's essence and energies um saint kirill has a lot of trinity like a lot of uh, good trinitarian works in that regard but very kind of saw nestorius in the stuff that he was saying he took a he took one year to study uh, the text from the from the church fathers mainly from the cappadocian so his theology is fundamentally cappadocian and starts critique Nestorius's Christology on those grounds. And in 431, we had the we had the Third Ecumenical Council of Ephesus in 431, where Nestorius was anatomatized. But uh, the Antiochian party, which was gonna well, it will be unfair to say the Antiochians will blanket defend Nestorius. Some of them had enough of him. 
But still, uh, the council happened before the Ikula Virad, and that gets into a lot of the historical mumbo jumbo. I think St. Kirill is right in, in like whatever happened there. Just want to make that point. Um, Father John Mukherjee gets into that history extremely well. But so basically, there was a schism between Antiochians and, and St. Kirill between, between 431 and 433, and a lot of Antiochians also um, didn't like St. Kirill. They thought he was a Polinarian. And that's because St. Kirill uses the term one incarnate nature of God the Word, uh, one nature of God the Word in flesh, the Mia Physis formula. Now, here's the thing before 423, St. Kirill uses that formula only three times. And two of those times, he's just quoting pseudo Athanasius. Now, why is it pseudo Athanasius? Here's the thing he got that, he didn't get, he didn't make up that formula and think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refute Nestorius by saying there's only one nature when he says two nature. His, his, his logic doesn't work that way. The reason why he even used that term is because it's an Apollinarian forgery where Apollinarius, in order for, for his ideas to survive, basically, he forged letters or his followers forged letters where they changed the name from Apollinarius to Athanasius. So like letter, letter to Jovian, right? Emperor Jovian. Uh, it was written by Apollinarius. His followers forged it to mean Athanasius. So St. Kirill is quoting pseudo-Athanasius, and he thinks it's St. Athanasius when in reality it's Apollinarius. And we also know Apollinarius is the really the grandfather of the one nature formula because we have Hans uh, Leitzman's work on, on this issue where uh, he talks extensively on this issue. There's a book by a follower of him called Timothy. There's a, it's, it's a book titled Ecclesiastical History. Leontes of Jerusalem quotes this book. And <laughs> Timothy straight up says, the reason why Athanasius and the Cappadocians and all of these people are heretical is because they believe in two natures, whereas Apollonius believes in one nature. So that's how he sees that. But suddenly now St. Kirill uses that, that term. And in his mind, he's, he's, he just means you know, the two natures are united and become one in the sense, like in the sense that the body and soul unite and they are human nature, right? So you get a human person that way. So like St. Kirill did not have a heretical idea with it. Um, he had an orthodox idea and the Fifth Ecumenical Council actually even accepts certain qualifi qualified understandings of the one nature formula, right? provided that you know, even, even by the way, the Antiochians, even, even they accepted it. In 433, Theodoros um changed the term nature to hypostasis and says, well, if that's what you mean, then we agree, right? And that's where they agreed in 433. Um, so it's, it's really not that nebulous of a term. The problem is uh, a lot of people in Alexandria started to think this was a two nature versus one nature problem. And especially after the death of St. Kirill of Alexandria, you had Dioscorus who really pushed that view. Uh, Dioscorus believed in many things St. Kirill taught. His main problem was that uh, if you speak of two natures at all, you are implying some form of division, right? If you speak of two natures in Christ, it's like you're, you're basically saying there are two particulars. So he equivocated the term nature to particular or particular nature. And so if Christ is two particular natures, then Christ is two hypostases. In fact, one of his criticisms of the Chalcedonian definition is that they say two natures and then they say one hypostasis. Well, it's one or the other, right? So that's his argument. That's the argument he's making. And 
that's kind of like sets the ground for the schism where it becomes a one nature versus two nature argument. And the historical aspect of the argument seemed very strong for the, the severance, Dioscorans, etc., until uh, people found out those so-called patristic writings where they, where they speak of one nature were actually forgeries. And what's even worse is that now you have even more evidence that the fathers actually did speak of two natures, um, including St. Kirill of Alexandria. For example, in 423, this is letter 39, he says, some theologians speak of Christ as one hypostasis and some divide him to him as sayings according to his two natures. And he basically says, that's fine, right? You can do that. And uh, now, in, in what way should we read that letter? That's, that's a whole different debate as well. There's a lot of different debates going on between the two sides. But um, another thing, before he got into Christology, blatantly in Glafira, in the, in the Glafira on the Pentateuch, I believe he's, this is, this is his biblical Old Testament commentary on Leviticus. He gives the analogy of the two birds that were not cut and he says that in that in this sense, Christ is into natures like those birds. But he's also, because the birds are not divided and cut into two, he is also one, right? So that's the, that's the kind of, it's one of the things that he says in Glafira. Um, so in, but at that time, in the fifth century, a lot of people got, you know, fell into this one nature versus two nature dialectic. But eventually you had even Dioscorus and Severus they really developed their arguments because this is the main arg main point I'm getting at now is that this disputation is not about slogans, right? It's like, oh, you guys say two natures, we say one nature. It's not primarily about that anymore because when this issue developed, it became a whole different kind of a ballgame. We went way beyond. Uh, I, I will summarize it as saying that the issue really became... Can we speak of Christ in a dual sense in any way? Or can, so can we speak of Christ as two natures, two energies, two wills, two minds? Or do we have to only speak of them as one? That's really what it became. So it's not just two natures, but the, but the question of duality itself. And maybe some people might understand where I'm getting at, but once you kind of understand that's the... That's the debate. I think a light bulb will shine in your head and you'll say, wait a second. You know, for example, you might say, well, if, if duality is division, which is what Severus of Antioch literally says, if duality is division, well, is, is a triad a division, right? Well, if it's a division, then you have three divided hypostases, right? So that means triteism. In fact, I make the case, in my opinion, I think, monophysite Christology is really tritheistic. I think that's what it leads to. Yeah. And not only that, it's monotolite as well. So it leads to the uh, idea of that there's only one will in Christ as well, only that's, one that's energy in Christ point. as well. That's a very great point. That's when, and, so, when and to you... finalize that, and to, uh, sorry, but I'll, right, I'll right. yeah, this is also a very important point because Dioscorus and Severus, when they read the Tome of Leo, their main criticism one of their main criticisms is that uh, the tome speaks of two energies and two properties and two natures. So a lot of people focus on the two nature aspect, but the two properties and two energies, that's a very fundamental aspect of the tome of Leo. 
So it's not just about you say one nature, that or that kind of stuff, but like the Tome of Leo is fundamentally a diotolite, really, um, Christological document. This is how St. Sophronius of Jerusalem understands this as well. So that's that's what I wanted to add. No, I, I think that uh, the way you uh, explicated everything, it just was like uh, this whole buildup of patella climax. And one thing that really stuck with me was that when you uh, affirm monophysitism and you actually are confirming tritheism. It's like when mm -hmm. you say like when dualism is uh, is a negation of one another, then first of all, when you believe yeah. in the Trinity, but by, by definition, how if that can be true, why can that not be true? So and like, and by the way, um, John Philoponus, who was a monophysite, in fact became a triteist for that very reason. Another thing, this you can find this in Johannes Zakuber's The Rise of Christian Theology and the End of Ancient Metaphysics, he notes a person called John Askudzanges. Uh, he is in the chron Chronicles of Michael the Syrian, I believe. He's a 12th century Monophysite chronicler. Uh, John Askudzanges was the first Monophysite triteist, really, like publicly speaking. He blatantly said that, you know, the the... If the Trinity is three hypostases, then the Trinity is three natures because the nature and hypostasis have to be numerically equal. That's an argument he makes. And a lot of people, a lot of monophysites, and by and the this is uh, Michael the Syrian noting this. The monophysite you know, scholar is noting this. A lot of people from the Oriental Church became Chalcedonian because they realized their Christology leads to tritheism. So it's not something. It's not just some mental. It's 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 actually it actually did happen. So it actually did happen when people realized. Wait a second. If we have these christological beliefs, if we say duality is division, and we base our rejection of two natures on that reason, on that metaphysical principle, then we have to reject the Trinity. Yeah. We and have to say there are three you've, gods. You've played yourself out of the game when you are. Yeah, exactly. But but then my next question is: uh, this goes more into the soteriological aspect. Why did God at least have to be human? Like I know, mm -hmm. that, like if it comes to the the, the lab of God, for the, the uh, why did He need to become human? Why didn't just at the at the, the, the clip of fingers like save us? Yeah. Uh, before I answer this question, I will I will also like to say that um, we should definitely, I think, uh, have some time talking about Severus's Christology as well, because yeah, if I don't. I, th I think, I think, yeah, yeah. But to answer your question, uh, St. Athanasius says that corruption, the thing about corruption is that it's intricately tied to sin. And the thing about sin is that it's a sin is choosing, you know, moving away from the good, right? So unless God wanted to disrespect the free will of human beings, which will go against the image of God in human beings. He can't just snap his fingers and kind of just say, you know, death be gone. Also, uh, corruption is a is a condition. It's a move from being, which is the which which has a divine character, fundamentally speaking, to non-being, which is the opposite of that. And it's it's could also only be reversed and healed, right? It will only be healed as St. Athanasius says, and also St. Gregory Theologian says, through the incarnation, right? What is not assumed has not been healed. This is the soteriological maxim of St. Gregory the Theologian against Apollinarius because Apollinarius says, 
Christ does not have a human mind, St. Gregory Theologian says, then your human mind is not saved because it is not assumed, it is not healed, right? So, and, and the incarnation had to happen again because our human nature had to become deified. Again, what, what I talked a couple of minutes ago about the one mediator, right? You know, God could snap his fingers all he wants, but unless he becomes incarnate, unless God becomes man, that you really cannot bridge the gap between man and God. But if, if there's an incarnation, suddenly the divine nature and human nature has something in common. And that's the hypostasis of the, of the logos, the word of God, Jesus Christ. You, now we have that in common with God. That's a very significant aspect of our cosmological aspect of salvation because um, we believe in the second coming that, and St. Paul talks about this theme. In fact, my uh, the first video, Introduction to Forgotten Christianity, the first video in the History of Christian Theology series, Introduction to Forgotten Christianity, I've, half of that video is about recapitulation. And it's incredibly important because it is about all creation being taken on and unified in the person of Christ, where we are united with God uh, in the eschaton. Now, this is a bit off topic, but some might ask, for example, if you're all united with God and, you know, we have unity with him, etc., then doesn't, isn't that universalist, right? How, how's that not universalist? Well, St. Maximus, the confessor, says that our experience in the eschaton is dependent on our mode of willing. Now, mode of willing means the way the will is used according to that hypostasis, right? So it's a hypostatic character. Uh, not an essential character. So, for example, if you live your life, like, like, for example, let's say you're a God protect you from, let's say a random person, God protect them too, but let's say a random person is, is a Satanist, he hates God, he hates liturgy, he hates prayers, everything about God. Ask yourself this, if he goes to meet God, do you think he will like that experience, well, he hates God, he hates prayers, he hates liturgy, he hates everything about God. What makes you think that he's going to like that, right? So it's a, it's a subjective experience based on how you approach God in the present life. And so the mode of willing in that, in that sense, it doesn't change. It's, it's static, but it's also ever moving, right? You're still making decisions. It's just that the repentance factor, kind of, not the repentance factor, but the kind of activity to change it that's kind of gone so for example after the crucifixion christ went into hades as saint peter says in his epistle um he went to hades and he preached the gospel to them some people accepted him and some people didn't now the 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 basis of their acceptance was how they lived their life right uh before their death obviously uh if they lived if they lived according to the to the how should i say the fundamental blueprint of life that god designed for us right even if they didn't know him in the sense that we know him now due to revelation uh, they still in their nature because as saint paul says all men know god in their hearts yeah. right so if if those people who lived their life according to that right well they already lived lived life in a way they will have accepted christ basically. And so when Christ came to them to preach the gospel to them, they accepted him because they lived their whole life in a Christ-like way as much as they possibly could in their heart. Whereas evil people, for example, unrepentant evil people rejected him because 
the ideals of Christ are completely contradictory to these people. So, I mean, I, I, I forgot what, what the question even was, but that's, I think that's matter. an important detail. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good question. Was there something else that you wanted to add on just before? No. Uh, well, the only thing I would, it's a different topic, but like I, I just said that it will be good if it talked about Severus's Christology no, eventually please. in this. Go, go ahead, go ahead. All right now, okay. So this is this is a very important topic because Severus of Antioch, no matter if you're Ethiopian, Armenian, Coptic, or Syriac, Severus is your Thomas Aquinas or your Saint Augustine, whatever you want to say, right? Uh, in the sense that he is pretty much the most influential theologian. Well, you know, Saint Kirill is also also like that for the for the Orientals as well. But uh, aside from Saint Kirill, he he is the most important theologian for the Oriental side. Uh, and so, his arguments even today are the basis uh, are used as theological bases on why Orthodox are supposedly Nestorian. So, so we need to understand what Severus is saying. So for hypostatic union, uh, for Severus, the hypostatic union is, actually, before I even get that, we need to define, the way he defines the term hypostasis and usia are very different, hypostasis or nature. So in the Trinity, he defines nature to mean usia. But in Christology, nature can have a general signification or a particular signification. Now, this is where you're get, getting to the point of the Aristotelian substance, no, universal and particular dichotomy. Severus is pretty much operating on that view completely. It's just particular universal. It's just that. So the term hypostasis just means particular. The term usia means universal. And uh, this is in the Pauline Allen text collection. Now, uh, I, I don't know... Then, but I just finished an article on this topic. So, if you want to see the sources, I'll link it in the comments section below as well, or description. When it comes out, it'll come out soon. Um, but in the Paul and Allen collection, Severus explicitly says that the term universal means collection of particulars. So, what is the divine nature? Well, it's a collection of the three hypostases. So, the divine nature is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So, when you're speaking of the divine nature you're speaking of all of the divine hypostases same thing with the with human nature you speak of human nature it's just a collection of all human uh, particulars now once we understand that uh, severus un takes the out of two natures formula because for him because it just makes the most sense for him christ is out of two particulars divine particular and human particular and the divine particular is self-subsistent it has existence on its own the human particular does not right it does not have existence on its own it exists only in, in the context of the union no other time by the way we, all, we will also say that the human nature only exists in the person of christ but the conclusions are different so the two particulars are united and they become one composite self-subsistent particular. And so you have one nature of God, the word, and flesh, basically. That's, for him, that's the meaning of the formula. And there is minor patristic, there, there is patristic basis from St. Epiphanius of Cyprus, uh, Cyprus 
and even from St. Cyril of Alexandria in some texts, there is some basis insofar as you're talking about two realities are now made one. Right? In, in, in that sense, yes, but that's something that we also agree. What we don't agree is when Severus talks about these two particles become, becoming one, he's basically saying two hypostases become one hypostasis. In fact, he says that, the, that Christ was united of two special hypostases. Now, in his debate with John the Grammarian, Severus, uh, he, John the Grammarian uses the argument that, first of all, he says, look, Severus, you seem to misunderstand what we are saying. When we speak of two natures and one hypostasis, what we mean is that the two natures mean usia. Right? We don't mean particular, we don't mean hypostases. We mean two universals. Christ is two universals, right? The, he has a universal human nature, universal divine nature. And, and this is very huge difference becomes obvious here, in my opinion, because Severus rejects that. He says, it makes no sense to speak of Christ as having two usia. That's absolutely no sense. And he says, if that was the case, and we understand the term usia to mean, you know, the, the signification of all hypostases, all of its hypostases, well, then that means um, if the human nature and divine nature are united, then all human persons are united with all of the divine persons. And so the entire Trinity was incarnate in all of the persons. That makes no sense, right? Whereas, well, if you speak of particular, suddenly you can pick out a particular, right, Christ, and another particular, a particular human nature, have a union with them, well, you can, you can have that, right? So you're seeing a very different metaphysic here. Now, um, as, as I said, he also rejects the idea of duality, right? He says that duality is division. To speak of two things is to imply that they are separate. So to speak of two natures, if you say two particles, again, when you say two particulars, Sarah's going to say, so you're saying two hypostases. That's what you're saying, right? Uh, we as Orthodox, we will say that, well, in, well, there is a universal nature and particular nature. St. Gregory Palamas says that um, the universal exists in the particular, right? So, for example, Christ in his hypostasis has the fullness of the divine nature, right? And even you and I, we have the fullness of human nature because the universal human nature exists in our particular nature that is uh, concretized and realized in our person. And then there is the, the hypostasis, right? So universal particular hypostasis. So we will say that, the first of all, hypostasis is different from essence, whereas Severus would say, and not only Severus, but John Philoponus, so although he's a, he's a heretic for both Orientals and Orthodox, He's a heretic because he's a triteist for the Monophysites. So his Christology was not rejected. And John points out that the term particular just means particular nature. So hypostasis is just merely the instantiation of a nature. But if hypostasis, if all it is, is just an instantiation of nature and nothing more, then really it's not different from nature. It's just the same thing. It's just the same thing in a different mode of existence, Right. But by that logic, then my human nature will be different from yours because we have different instantiations. Suddenly, I have a different human nature than you are. You have, so we're not consubstantial anymore. Well, that doesn't make any sense now, does it? It doesn't. But 
when you kind of take that view, that's kind of that's kind of what you get. Another another issue is for 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 Severus, we need to remember human the humanity in Christ is non-self-subsistent. That means it's not numbered. That's the conclusion Chestnut reaches, and he cites a letter from Severus to prove her point. So what does that mean? If the if the human hypostasis in Christ after the union is not numbered, then the faculties of that particular is also not numbered. So Severus, this is also why he rejects the idea of two energies, right? This is why you cannot ever speak of Christ, you know, do you know suffering in a human way and being glorious in a divine way. You cannot speak of that ever. And that's one of the main arguments against the tomb. So, so Christ does not have two energies. He has one, and he quotes St. Dionysius the Areopagite. He says, Christ has one theandric divine human activity, which is also what we say, right? But the conclusion is different. St. Maximus the Confessor says, the fact that Christ has a theandric will and energy proves that he has two wills and two energies. Why? Well, uh, and this gets into the, in the view of hypostatic union too, because this is one of the problems. Uh, this is one of the arguments the Nazis of Jerusalem uses against Severus too. Is uh, let's say, for example, you have a union of two particulars and they become one. Well, are so is the human nature and divine nature are they still distinct after the union? They're not mixed, right? They're not confused. You can still distinguish them. There's a, there's a human part and then there's a divine part, right? But the moment you start talking about human part and divine part, the moment you start making a distinction between the two natures after the union, guess what? You're admitting there are two natures, right? If you're not admitting that, then what are you admitting, right? Then you will have to admit that the two, that the natures Christ is from do not exist after the union, but then he's neither of those natures then. Then they are confused. They, they're mixed or they disappear. Right, so that's that's another reason why we speak of two natures after the union as well, because they preserve their existence. It's the same thing with the will, right? Uh, Saint Maximus, the confessor in in the disputation against Pyrrhus, asks Pyrrhus. Pyrrhus's position is that Christ only has a uh, has a yeah, he has a composite will, but he only has one will. And Saint Maximus asks him, "Is is this will of Christ? Is it created or, or uncreated?" And the, and the logic he's getting at is if it's created, then it's not divine. If it's uncreated, then it's not human. If it's both, then you, then there are two wills. There's a there's a there's a human part of that will that is created and a divine part of that will that's uncreated. It's the same thing with the two natures after the union in Severus' scheme, right? The two natures have become one nature. Well, is is the is this one hypostasis, that one composite hypostasis, is it created or uncreated, right? If it's both, then there's a hypostasis that's created and one that's uncreated. You're speaking of two hypostases now, right? And, and uh, you, can't, you can't really say that, oh, there's only one hypostasis and it's created and uncreated in the same exact sense in and of itself, because then you're kind of just saying, I don't know, you're just... You're just basically saying that there's a point and you're saying there's a point and there's not a point. You know what I mean? Like you're, it's pretty much a non-answer. All things are either created or uncreated. One thing cannot in that particular, in that specific sense, cannot be created and uncreated at the same time. It's just logically impossible. Now, someone might ask, for example, 
Wait a second, David. So let me ask you that question. Do you believe Christ is created or uncreated? Well, St. Maximus the Confessor says Christ is uncreated according to his hypostasis and created according to his human nature, right? So yes, Christ is both because he is created according to his human nature, uncreated according to his divine nature. There you go. The problem is solved. Uh, but you can't give that answer because that will require you to admit there are two natures. So that's that, one, of the, one of the issues. Yeah. Then it becomes an either or dialectic. Well, or this or that, but that's not the issue. It can be both. If it comes to as in, yeah. as in, can you elaborate? I didn't understand. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. When, when you say like, um, what's the person of Christ created or uncreated, then, then in that particular moment, you are... Uh, giving a false dilemma fallacy, like or this or that, like an either or dialectic. But you're saying it, it can be both, like the divine. Yeah, it is both. Basis, it can be both. As a person. Or is or is Christ one or the, is he is he is he unity or duality? Well, both. He's yeah. unity in his hypostasis. He's duality in his natures. But this duality does not destroy the unity. So you still have both. Again, like. If, if, if something cannot be united and plural at the same time, then first of all, human nature is unity and plural at the same time. Human nature is body and soul, body nature and soul nature. So human nature is two natures too, right? Uh, now we say, we, we talk about human nature being one nature because there's a human species. There's not a body species or soul species. So when we say two natures as well, we're kind of including the term species in it. But if we're talking about nature in the sense of, a reality, a pragma, a thing, right? That technically we are two natures and technically Christ is three natures in the sense that divine nature, body nature, and soul nature. But, I, you know, I, body I, and soul exist as human nature because they're a species, right? I, I do have a question about something that you just said before. What can you elaborate a bit more about what it means uh, to be non-self-subsistent? What does that mean? Okay, yeah, so um, for Severus, self-subsistent basically means existing on itself. So, for example, uh, you, you are self-subsistent. You, you don't need to subsist in something else. You don't have to go in here in something else in order to exist. Now, technically speaking, we all, we all subsist because of God, right? Yeah, but uh, we're taking a more philosophical approach here in the, in the meaning of subsistence is that we don't need to be united to another substance in order to exist, right? So uh, for Severus, the human nature is not subsistent because the human nature only exists in, in, in union with the divine nature. So the way we will explain this is the is a is the concept of in hypostasis. Uh, we will say that the that the human nature is in hypostatized. That is, the human nature does not have a human hypostasis of its own, but its hypostasis is the divine hypostasis of the logos. And Saint Cyril uses the analogy of uh, iron that is burning in fire, something like that, where. Uh, and he uses this analogy in on the unity of Christ in when he's trying to explain how Christ suffered, even though he's God, or how Christ, how God yeah. suffered on the cross. Um, he's using that analogy. So he says that, you know, fire that is united with iron, if you're hitting that iron with a hammer, right, you're going through the fire, 
but you only contact iron. You're not hitting the fire, right? Because it's just not according to the nature of the fire, but you're still hitting uh, the nature of the iron. And so that's how we shall understand that Christ suffered on the cross in his human nature. And yeah, and, and I will say, for example, to that, well, it seems to me that St. Kirill is saying that there is a nature that suffered and another nature that is beyond suffering. What could that be? Well, it has to be the divine nature. Divine nature. But wait a second. That means there are two natures now, right? So, again, <laughs> like, that's... Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, it just, you get that the very conclusion, whatever angle you're, you're looking at. It. And, and I want to I correct myself. Some people might have, a, have an issue with me and think that I'm characterizing the Oriental position as if it's like like denying that God, I'm not saying that. Like I'm, I understand that the Oriental position is trying to say that Christ is fully God and fully man, right? I'm like the Nestorians, us and uh, Manafsas, we all say the same, like we all want the same thing. I think, I think we all want the same thing. A Jesus Christ, that's one person and he's fully God and fully man. That's what we want. The problem is we have completely different theologies, and the, the end result we get is completely different. So, so maybe someone, someone might say, well, look, David, you know, this is just theology. It's like advanced stuff, right? This is, for the, this is for the bishops. This is for the saints. You know, how are we supposed to, like, discern? How are we, you know, you can't, let, let us just have this. Let us just have what we want to have. And the way we try to explain it, that's just our quirky way of understanding it. Let's just leave it at that. Well, I'm sorry, but you'd have to then accept Nestorius because the reason why Nestorius was condemned, again, did Nestorius explicitly say that he believes in two persons? No, right? But the reason Nestorius was associated with the idea that Christ is two persons is because his theology leads to that conclusion. That's the reason. Yeah. That's the whole basis of condemning Nestorius. That itself proves that we can look at the, look at a theological uh, system and see where its conclusions lie. And I'm applying the same exact thing. In fact, Vinny Manaf says apply that logic to us historically, in my experience, until very recently, when you start to have these kind of more ecumenical gatherings and, oh, we actually believe the same thing, kind of stuff, which uh, people like to cite the Joint Commission Agreement in 1990, between the Orthodox Church and the, and the Orientals. It's just Henoticon. Uh, anyone who knows, if, do you know what the Henoticon is? No. It's a 5th century, it's a fifth century uh, imperial document, whose, which his whole point was to unite uh, the anti-Chalcedonians and the Chalcedonians into the same church. It's literally the same thing. It's the same idea. It didn't work. History is not going to work again. And what Henoticon, and the mistake of the Henoticon is that it completely ignored whether Chalcedon should be accepted or not. What did the Joint Commission Agreement do? It did the same thing. It completely ignored Chalcedon. It just said, well, we believe in X, Y, Z. The thing is, yes, we do believe in, this, in, in some of the same things. We have similar views on some issues. Yeah, yeah. No one contested that. We're contesting the entire system and, and the, the metaphysics <laughs> and the presuppositions. That's what we're contesting. And they were not addressed. And some of the things that they tried to address for example, I'm sorry, I'm monologuing here, but it, it's 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 really important. For example, one of the argument, one of the statements is, um, 
oh, we both, we both distinguish the two natures in Christ conceptually, right? That's what the Joint Commission uh, statement says. Well, yes, we do distinguish his two natures conceptually. But what do you even mean by that? You know, it's just, it's just a word. It can have different meanings. So for Severus, conceptual distinction just means just making stuff up, basically. <laughs> like in, it is a street, in a street language, making stuff up. Basically, it like making a separation in your mind that is not there in reality. That's basically what he means. That's what conceptual distinction or conceptual separation means. But the patristic understanding of conceptual distinction is actually very different. And a lot of people have a video on conceptual distinctions. And uh, if you look at, uh, for example, St. Kirill of Alexandria's commentary on the book of John, he conceptually distinguishes the father from the son. Now, wait a second. I thought they were really distinct. Well, yes. But why are we conceptually distinguishing them? Well, the Alexis of Jerusalem in his book Against the Monophysites actually talks about that argument so he says that he just asked them if you're going to distinguish the two natures how do you think you're going to distinguish them by sense perception well good job you you sense the invisible right so we can't distinguish the two natures in, in a sensory sense so it's an epistemic kind of a so the, the conceptual distinction the distinction is in reality but it's being conceptual refers to its us knowing the distinction epistemically. The point is that in order to distinguish things that are invisible, you have to, you can only conceptually distinguish them. That's the idea because you can't experience them through the senses, right? And that's what he's saying is that we distinguish the two natures conceptually because the divine nature is invisible. So we have to distinguish them conceptually. That's not only his argument, but that's also St. Justinian's argument. And that's also an argument the Council of Chalcedon in its definition makes. The, the, it says that we acknowledge Christ in two natures. The term acknowledge is no resuming on. This is a point made by Patrick Gray. I have his book here. Uh, Patrick Gray, this is a very rare book. Uh, Defense of Chalcedon in the East. He makes this in the first 15 pages in this book, makes that point. Uh, Chalcedon is conceptually distinguishing the two natures. Do you know who does not conceptually distinguish the two natures? Nestorians. Why? Because for them, the two natures have different concretizations, right? So it's a concrete distinction. And so when you concretely distinguish between two things, you're basically saying that's a, that's a hypostasis and that's a hypostasis, two different hypostases. So conceptual distinction is a Kirillian idea, but it's even beyond St. Kirill. It's a, it's a Cappadocian idea. You see this in St. Gregory the Theologian as well, uh, where he conceptually distinguishes between God's names, God's energies, uh, Christ's two natures, and the divine persons in the Trinity. He uses conceptual distinguish, distinction for all of them. So, but final note, it's an important qualification not all conceptual distinctions are the same because, you know, for example, if I thought of a unicorn and I distinguish the unicorn from, a, I don't know, from, from the unicorn's horn or something, uh, that's a conceptual distinction. But is that a real distinction? No, because the, because the unicorn doesn't exist. Unless you believe in unicorns, then that's a different story. But unicorns don't exist, right? So that's a conceptual distinction, but it's not a real distinction. That you, you are imagining things. So 
imagining things is part of concept, you know, making distinctions conceptually, but that's not all it is. And in fact, if you want a specific book that really deals with this topic, I will recommend St. Basil's Against Eunomius. Book one is all about epinoia, which is conceptions. And St. Basil treats the epinoia as if they are real. So he's, he talks about Christ being the vine, being door, you know, all of these different names we ascribe to him as ideas and conceptions about God that are real. Now, we're not saying Christ is literally a door. When we use the term door, we are referring to a specific, it's an analogy, it's a specific character of door, you know, that Christ is door-like or vine-like, right? Or something, you know, or like he's the shepherd, right? When we call him yeah. shepherd, you know, are we saying that he's like the shepherd that you know from the village? No, but he has he has a similar character with that shepherd. Yeah. It, you know, he has some kind of a similarity between him in his activity. That's, you know, that's an idea. That's a conception we have in our mind is ultimately real. So conceptions can be real. And therefore, for example, that's one of the problems in the Joint Commission. It speaks of a conceptual distinction while two sides have a completely different view. That's one of the many issues I had. And I think it's important because I've noticed that every time I kind of just skip over these things, people bring them up as if they're like um, super like good arguments. And they're, I'm, I'm sorry, but they're not because I've seen them before. <laughs> Uh, I, I thought of them before. I thought of them. Like I, I, I made those arguments before and I was proven wrong. That's why, that's why it's like, there's so many like these little traps that people kind of sometimes fall into. So it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's rough. It's rough. Yeah. But, but it, it is something very uh, understandable when people fall into traps because every one of us yeah, yeah. into traps. So like when you see someone speaking very convictingly, like, no, this is not, this, this is that, then you know actually how the person has felt or how he's thinking. But um, coming to the point when, just because when a certain group or denomination affirms something doesn't necessarily may, mean that we are the same. Like, mm-hmm. have like a creedal said, like, I believe in one God the Father, I believe in the resurrection, a Pontius Pilate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When there is another denomination or, or even different religion which says like oh my god's omniscience does not mean that uh, it is the same faith so it, we do need to have those collection of, of creedal points in order to say uh, that we are the same or not but it, it is yeah is it if it comes to salvation uh, if, it, if it comes to like who is saved who is not saved that's all up to god but if it comes to mm-hmm. theological doctrines then we can dispute then we can have let the truth prevail. And then uh, as Proverbs 27, 17 says, iron sharpens iron. And that's exactly what has happened for the past thousands of years. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing. Just because I see uh, one Christian denomination like debating another doesn't necessarily mean something bad. To me. Like I'm not ashamed mm-hmm. of that particular part. Yeah. Stand corrected, which I have. Like I have like made so many notes a lot of homework to do for me right now and of course also the, uh... i'm sorry i'm sorry i didn't mean to no, give no, you no. homework no no no, no. <laughs> it's, just, it's something i'm very interested in so it's it's been a very fruitful conversation so far um is there something that you would like to add on as a conclusive uh conclusive uh end word mm-hmm. yeah i think 
the i definitely agree with a lot of it and i don't even think this is that complex what makes it complex is that we just don't have like open we don't have people being honest on this issue in in my experience um it's 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 very easy to just say it's just a language problem you know politics etc etc and am i denying that there was a political aspect to it absolutely not there was a lot of political stuff in it but guess what every heresy had its own political stuff the Nestorian heresy had a lot of politics in it too does that mean that we, we can just hand well some people go as far as to say yes we can right so like where's the limit then can we like let's let's start to consider arianism then by that logic no you have to look at the theology you have to look at what their confessions and their beliefs are and actually listen to what they're saying right i think the the irony here is that a lot of people are going to you know it this kind of feel it's like you know it's it's pretty rough and i'm used to it you know some people are like oh you know you're lying about us you're doing this you're, it's kind of i find it ironic because actually i'm paying a lot more attention to what my opponents say than um what the so-called ecumenist not so-called but like actual ecumenist or like weak people are actually they're not paying attention to what you guys are saying i am that's why that's why like i'm saying these things right because i'm paying some kind of attention now just because someone pays attention to that doesn't mean that he's going to be always right on that issue so there's a specific um, yeah, ju- oriental... Just, 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 just because yeah. I have a Quran in my hand doesn't mean I am a Muslim. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a specific, I, I suppose, an Anglo-Oriental scholar, so most people might know him. Um, he's, he says he's studied this issue for 40 years, but he's made some incredibly basic mistakes that actually made me feel bad for him. And I don't even mean this to like dunk on him, but like, for example, um, to give you an example of what I mean, um, he tried to argue, he, he has a very interesting article named Severus the Diophysite, which is, what? <laughs> but, uh, well, I can give you 10 out of 10 for the, for the provocation, for sure. That definitely caught my attention. But one of the arguments he makes is, he, he quotes Severus saying that in the crucifixion, Christ showed two wills. And he is saying, oh, well, look, Severus is saying Christ has two wills. And the issue is, when you read the full text, this is from Against the Grammarian, you can, you can find the, the more complete version in uh, Alloy Grillmeyer's Christ and Christian Tradition, Volume 2, Part 2. This is from Against the Grammarian. And the next paragraph, he says, we should not then think that this means Christ has two natures. That's basically what is we can't separate him to a duality of wills or natures or anything like that so what he's what he is saying in that is that he he's saying that he kind of like externally showed that um because the human the human will is is kind of like an icon of the divine will so it's moved by the divine will that's a whole different topic but that's a mm-hmm. that's a topic chestnut uh talks about where she says that well the human the faculties of human nature are also not self-subsistent, right? So, and and there's an iconic view, iconic relationship between uh, human nature and divine nature in Severus. It, so the human nature is not a mirror image, otherwise it will be a divine nature. That doesn't make sense. But it's an icon in the sense that it does things what the divine will, will do in a human way. So it sounds very similar to what we're saying. The problem is that the, this means that the human will is not really humanly free. You can say that Christ had human freedom in a certain sense in the system, but we will say in a much stronger way that 
Christ was humanly self-determining. So his human will was completely humanly free. And uh, it wasn't under the, the kind of, like the divine will wasn't controlling the human will, right? So Christ, when he was humanly willing things, he had actual authentic human free will. Now, some might say, but wait a second, doesn't that imply that Christ could sin? Well, free will is defined by choosing multiple goods. So Christ still had free will because he could yeah, choose yeah. between but, multiple goods. That's what the Garden of Gethsemane is about. Yeah. Uh, avoiding, like us yeah. in every type of way except for the rule of sin. It was, yeah. and, and that was the whole thing. Yeah. yeah, and that's actually, yeah, consubstantial in all with us except for sin. That's, yeah, Kalkadon says that, yeah. But uh, off topic, but I use that as, a, as, a, as an argument against immaculate conception. Anyway, uh, but... Yeah, so great point. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but um, what was I getting at? Yeah, so there's th there's that difference too, right? So we don't view the human faculties as if they are under the dominion of the divine nature. And by the way, there is a controversy called the Agnote controversy. This is covered, especially those who can read Syriac. I recommend this book for you because this book is called Monophysi Texts of the Sixth Century, I believe. Um, I recommend this to the Syriac readers because the texts are in Syriac, but the introduction is in English. And uh, the book talks about the Agnote controversy, and it points out that Pope Theodosius, who is, by the way, a Oriental saint, Pope Theodosius of Alexandria was debating with uh, Themistius, who was an Agnote. And Agnote is, the, the term Agnote refers to Christ not knowing. So, uh, Themistius believed that Christ was ignorant in his humanity, but he was all-knowing in his divinity. Theodosius says that will imply Christ has two wills. And so his response is that Christ only has a divine will. And therefore, Christ is never ignorant in any way. Which, if you look at scripture, it's... Now, this is an incredibly nuanced part, but it might be hard... Well, it's not hard to understand. It's just it's people can fall into trap, but... Traps in this, but scripture says Christ grew in wisdom and knowledge. Now, uh, Christ grew in wisdom and knowledge because, according to Saint Kirill of Alexandria, he limited himself in a non-absolute manner in his humanity. And this is a this is a team talked about in Father John McGuckin's book on uh, Kirill of Alexandria Christological controversy. Christ, so Christ uh, limits his knowledge in his humanity, so he adopts a condition where he's genuinely. Um, ignorant in the sense that you know he grew in knowledge and learned things like a normal human being will but in his divine nature he was still all-knowing in fact that's kind of what saint athanasius says in uh on the inc on the incarnation yes where he kind of says you know as as a human as a human being christ was present in a in a place and you know it was walking etc but as god he was holding the universe together and keeping it orderly so maybe some people might say well that sounds like there are two persons here now well i will i will i will say i will say not because we're not we're not saying that there is a first of all we're not for, this this will imply that personhood resides in the mind or it's it, it's an aspect of the mind or it is the mind. But Christian theology says that it is not. So we don't believe that 
the mind or the so-called consciousness is the person. Personhood is a completely unique and distinct category that grounds existence. So, person, so Leontius of Jerusalem says, uh, hypostasis is the mode of existence in which uh, natures and their properties come to exist and their existence is absurd. So it is, it is not the nature, but it is where natures exist or unite and, uh, and, the, and its properties become manifest. It is where, the, where that existence happens. And so it's a concrete, irreducible uh, thing, you can say, where existence occurs. And so there's only one of that in Christ. There are not two different existences. Um, so I think that kind of a view, like I, I can understand if someone might think that way, but the thing is, um, the only reason you will have that view is if you have this kind of like a modern psychologically based um, understanding of uh, human yeah. anthropology. But uh, the, the, the example that you just, for instance, gave when uh, Christ died and he went to Hades and he preached there, or when he when he suffered on the cross and died, does it necessarily mean that he has got like the whole universe collapsed? Like, no. Uh, yeah. I would say the same thing if it comes to him being born as as one of us. And one of the analogies that Dr. Bo Branson, for instance, gave was uh, the, somewhat of the same analogy that you gave with the, the iron and hammering on the iron. Like, somewhere you, mm -hmm. you are hammering the substance of iron, but it's still the, the analogy yeah. that he gave. You have, like, you have like a sword and the property of that sword is that it's sharp but if you put that sword into uh into fire it is and you put it out of it it's so it's, it is as well as it is now coated with fire so it's it it adds a new quality to it exactly. right exactly but once you put that piece of sword into water it loses heat but it's mm -hmm. still sharp and we see when we see like for instance when christ died like he still remained the property of being sharp if as long yeah. as people can follow me so mm -hmm. it's, it's not the negation of it's it's, it's one of, again one of those uh, either or dialectics. Just because yeah. died, Christ died in his human nature doesn't necessarily say that he, he stopped being divine. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I definitely agree. Um, and and also I think uh, one book I will recommend on the topic of wills will be Byzantine Christ by Father Demetrius Patrelos, where he talks about Saint Maximus's Christos, um, because you know the the the, the theology of the will is is a completely different ball game as well but yeah, I as, as i i also have a i also have a video on that i have a video on, i have to have a video on everything huh? but um <laughs> but uh that's that's a, that's for example we will distinguish between will and the mode of willing right so in the trinity for example there's only one will but there are three modes of willing uh the father wills according to good pleasure the son wills according to um, the according to economy, and the spirit wills according to consent. Right, so the spirit completes divine activities. The son does the divine activity in him or through him, and the father is the one who kind of just decides. In you can think of it this way, you know, it's 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 son. it's not like it's not like he's like saying go do this. It's like he is the. Uh, it's not like go do this in the sense that he has his will and the other person what, has a different will. Again, from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, right? Was that yeah, through the, uh, in the Spirit. 
in yeah. spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just a different explanation of that principle, mm-hmm. right? That Father wills according to good pleasure. You know, what reminds me when uh, anti-Trinitarians refer to Paul's First uh, Corinthians 8, 6, where there's one God the Father from whom all yeah. things, but they don't read the last part of that word, word which is, and Jesus Christ through whom are all things. So yes. Paul's talking in Trinitarian way, which a lot of anti-Trinitarians just like completely negated, but that's exactly what we're mm-hmm. to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's that's a proof text. Yeah, I think I referred to this at uh, an hour ago in this video as well, that that's a proof text St. Basil uses too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I will say that in a way, like if you're, if you're debating with anti-Trinitarians, etc., we will again go to scripture talking about the divine activities. And so like, for example, what would you even say to that? So true, true, you know, true Christ, all things. Well, that implies Christ is eternal. Yeah. Right. <laughs> or, or if some people might say that he's the, like, some people will say that Christ is the first creation and that's why it's true yeah, right. him or all things, but it's like, it, yeah, but it's like, then that means God is, God needs a created being. Well, that is what in that is what here we will call a idiotic belief. <laughs> so God needed something created in order to create other stuff. That's just yeah. stupid. Like like uh, what was it? Three months ago, I was on uh, Sam Shimon's uh, YouTube channel, and he was uh, re- he was um, uh, talking about uh, Greg Stafford. And Greg Stafford's whole point was he believes he was an ex Jehovah's Witness, like an Aryan, but he did believe that Christ was a form of an angel. And he referred, of course, to, to Proverbs 8, like that he was the first creation. But mm-hmm. then one, and the, the final point that Sam Shimon, for instance, gave was like, wait a minute, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Yes, mm-hmm. heavens and earth are like time and space where angels can dwell in. Yes. Mm-hmm. But then if Jesus was the one who, through whom all things were created, didn't he need a, need a place to stay in? Like, yes, but wait a minute. God is not bound by time and space. That means that he is eternal. Mm-hmm. So like he is outside of that. Uh, he's outside, outside of, of space and time. Yeah. Angels, angels, angels are in time and space, but God not. Yeah. Like, can, yeah, exactly. And then this whole, thing of Aryan, Aryan like people say that the trinity is or, or god needed something in time and space to create time and space which is genius yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but i do understand where arianism comes from like sam shimon says for instance that uh, there was this platonic uh, philosophy that you had like the monad and the demiurge with like the the one uh, the one being you used the, the demiurge to create all things and Arius, yeah. he, he Christianized, Christianized that whole philosophy, which became the Aryan uh, doctrine. Yes, and I literally have a video about that as well. Yeah, that's yeah, the. Great. I think the the third video, uh, the the Neoplatonic origins of Arianism, something like that. Mm-hmm. I think I made a, I think I made a punny like thumbnail title, which was like um, the neo the Neoplatonic origin like origin of alexandria of arianism something like that because i was talking about origin and areas and how originism is really the source of arianism that originism is the christianization of uh, hellenic pagan uh, philosophy into christian theology and Arius just ran off with it that's kind of the argument that i made in that video and i i still hold that as true i think origin is 
not a good guy that we should look up to. Yeah, but, <laughs> unfortunately, I do not know a lot about Origin. I do know that there are some good things that he has attributed mm-hmm. to the church. But of course, we know he allegorized so many things that uh, I, I don't know if it was... Well, well, in the fifth ecumenical in the fifth exactly. ecumenical council, there are fifteen anatomists against origin. So you can you can start with that. I think, yeah, fifteen. Yeah, and uh, even before the fifth ecumenical council, I believe in five forty three, Saint Justinian, he he literally made the fifteen anatomists like civil law. I think something like that, like before making it in an ecumenical council, um, which was very interesting. But yeah, like that's the the. The time of the fifth ecumenical council is like, it's like um, Los Santos. It's so crazy. There's so insane things going on all like all the time. You have like, you have like originists and then monophysites and then historians and then historians trying to like subvert orthodoxy. And then you have or- like Kyrillic Chalcedonians, which is the orthodox group, basically. So you have all of these different groups competing with each other and the emperor's all like just constantly switch sides. Some of sometimes they're monophysites, sometimes they're orthodox. It's it's a crazy time period, and like thank God, you know, uh, in the old calendar, next week we're gonna have the feast day of Saint Gregory Palamas and Saint Justinian on the same day. Thank God for Saint Justinian. I mean, that's a, that's a, and I will speak to Saint Justinian. I will recommend his book. Yes, he is a theologian. His book, uh, well, not his book, but. Uh, on the person of Wait, Christ, Justinian the Emperor. Yes, what, nice. he's a yeah, he's a theologian. Uh, he there's a there's a book called On the Person of Christ, which I think is a translation of three of his theological books, and it's it's a great book. I I really like it. I'm reading through it right now. Um, I I could only access information about through secondary sources, but now I'm, now that I'm reading it, it's a great book. I will definitely recommend reading it especially if anyone wants to understand orthodox christology um in context of monophysite debates uh if you want to understand orthodox christology in context of nestorian debates well you can look at saint Kirill of alexandria but i will also recommend um kenneth uh, father paul vesh's phd dissertation called um, the defense of Chalcedon in the 6th century, Leontius of Jerusalem, the doctrine of hypostasis and theosis. A wonderful PhD thesis. I really recommend reading it. It's 10 out of 10. And um, that's also another great book. And again, I will list all of them in the comment section. I'll, yeah. I'll post the reading list. There's, there's, I, I noticed that I've listed so many different books, but um, I'm not, I don't blame anyone if they're like, if they, can't get through it because um, I I originally read those books to prepare for a debate. I had to read them in like, I had to read like 12 books in less than two months or something like that. And uh, I have a, I have a, I have a weird, I don't want to say condition. And I don't want like quirk. If I call it a quirk, it will be really not cool of me, but I don't know what to call it, but I can only I can I can read normally, but I can only read for a prolonged period of time if I'm eating sunflower seeds. So I had to eat a lot of sunflower seeds to like be able to read them because I I can't focus. Like 10, 15 pages later, I'm like, uh, you know. Yeah. But if I'm eating sunflower seeds in front of the computer, then I'm like, I can get through 30, 40 pages. Yeah. And 30, 40 pages in a day is like very small. But like we're talking about 
like very difficult books here. You know, we're not talking about Harry Potter. We're not talking about, um, I don't know, some some other book. I'm I'm not a I'm not a good I'm not a good book guy. <laughs> I will recommend people uh, to uh, to eat some sunflower seeds. But but do you read? Do you read like hard copies or do you actually read like on PDF on the screens? Uh, I'm a I'm a PDF appreciator. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm used to. Yeah. Not everybody, everybody their own way. It's it's still the day. Yeah, yeah. Um, if I had the choice between buying PDF or buying a hard copy, I'd buy PDF personally. I know a lot of people wouldn't. I guess maybe I'm a psychopath. I don't know, but uh, I like PDF. <laughs> I'm used to it. I, I, I completely understand people that say they're not used to it, but one advantage of PDFs is that I can just uh, screenshot an interesting portion and then just like uh, paste it in one of my like work folders so, so that I can like refer to it again. With a hardcover, I can't do that. It's very difficult. I'd have to, I don't know. If it's a hardcover, I just want to read it without taking notes. So I will definitely read like like fiction stuff and like stuff that you won't take notes definitely will read them hardcover it's just easier but you know even then i will say pdfs are more comfortable i don't know <laughs> yeah, i do agree with the fact that you want to be more organized mm -hmm. I, I use like this program where i can organize like all heresies contradictions so P pdfs in that particular sense are very good but at the same time when i have a hard copy i'm away from screens like when I'm going to work, I'm like one and a half hour every day to train. And that particular time I can use very well for to, to read, for instance, for like the past two or three months, I ran to 12 amazing books. Some books are one of those books that you are just like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're like really like eating up, devouring, but some books you're just going through it just to see what it's, what it's saying. Like one book about theosis, I just like completely... Yeah, with a, with a pen, I just like violated that book. It just was so beautiful. <laughs> and my book was like, yeah, yeah. It, it's good for reference. Like I have a lot of books about uh, Jewish scholars who do offer the Trinity, for instance, like Ellen F. Mm -hmm. Siegel, uh, Daniel Boyer and Benjamin D. Summer. I have read through them, but I did not devour them. But I do know yeah. it's very good to have just- Yeah, sometimes you got to read them multiple times too. I've read some of the books multiple times twice maybe some of them even three times uh one of them actually or three times some of them twice i'm pretty sure i yeah um i don't think i read the ew brooks set twice but i read the pauline allen set twice i read the i read the leontius jerusalem book from father paul vesha three times i'm pretty sure that's how much i liked it and there's a lot of there's a lot of really crucial um arguments there but I think we're getting too much off topic at this stage, but um, <laughs> if you have any other questions, I can answer them. If not, I think that will be it for time being. Otherwise, I'm going to have to keep you here for like five hours or something. No, like I, I know for <laughs> yeah. a fact that we could remain here for five, another five more hours. There wouldn't be a problem. But uh, for, for all the questions that I have left, we already addressed them. So we'll be talking in circles. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, for, uh, for all the book recommendations, I will, of course, post them under my subscription. I will do a lot more homework. I have a lot more uh, points I can get into because this is a subject that's very dear to my heart. And to have, mm -hmm. to have you have on was just an absolute blessing. Tremendously grateful. Tre very good. 
a very good session to have in my YouTube portfolio. Um, mm. What can what can I say? I'm just very grateful. Thank you, David. Thank you for uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for yeah. I I really enjoyed this as well. I mean, um, I sometimes still hope for like back and forth, but like I kind of accepted that I'm not going to get a proper back and forth. Um, I had two debates and they weren't really. I won't really call them good back and forth because I felt like the people I was engaging with, I don't think they really understood what we were teaching. I, I felt like, especially the second one, oh, this like reading, just, you know, if, some, if someone's, if someone's reading true, if, yeah, if someone's reading true notes and like just only reading true notes and making arguments that way, they're, they're, they haven't digested it, you know, like I'm not, obviously I'm not attacking making notes, or even reading notes in a debate, but like, if that's the only way you talk, then that's it. like, you know, um, maybe some might not, you know, some might say, oh, you have a, you have a screen with notes. And I've had no notes the whole time. Like I, because it's just in my mind yeah. so much yeah. that it's like, I'm not, I'm not saying that uh, that makes me cool. It's just like anyone can do it if they like study hard enough. So it's a matter of like conviction and time. And I have a lot of free time and people that don't have a free time, I can sympathize with them. It's not a, you know, it's not a big deal, but. Uh, but but what, what do you actually mean with back and forth? Do you thrive under pressure when there are heresies? Like No, no. It's just like, you know, like I'd, I'd like if uh, there were people that, like that actually knew, knew what they were talking about and like try to critique my view and actually responded to my criticisms because I haven't really had that. Like, in any of my discussions, I haven't really had, it felt like there's just two people talking over each other or even worse, some people assuming certain, so, some of them, one of them, for example, when I, when I made the tritheism critique, he said, well, you, you, lit, you yourself said that God is three natures. I've never said that ever in my life. I've never, ever said such a thing. And this guy just blatantly says, oh, no, I, you, you said that, like your, your religion believes that. It's like, no, like... <laughs> What are you talking about? So it's like, it's, it gets that. So it's like, I can't really do much, but I really enjoy, like, I don't, I really enjoy this. I really enjoy being able to present my case. And if you, you know, it's at that stage, I will like, obviously I want you to become Orthodox. And um, I, I feel like, you know, I kind of, in a way, like done my piece. I, and I'm happy to kind of just say, you know, it's, it's up to you. So like, however, you know, it can take five years, 10 years researching this stuff. Like for me, it's, it's all fine because I think that's kind of what we need today. We need more people to actually have conviction in their beliefs and taking, even if it's a long time, taking their time to like understanding it. We don't have that anymore. And that's, I think one of the main contributors to the downfall of civilization in the world at all yeah, civilizations are built by that kind of an attitude in my opinion that's why i'm a big proponent of sessions like this like for like hours long discussions in very deep subjects i'm, I'm a huge uh, opponent for if it comes to the dumbing down like i don't believe mm-hmm. that the, my watches right now are like are like deficient in their in their cognitive abilities and people don't mm-hmm. like them when, when you treat them like that way and mm-hmm. as you just said we need a lot more of those people and yeah, and, and mm. I've, I've received a lot, of, a lot of messages when I told my friends, like, yeah, I'm having a David Real. My friend, oh, yeah, ask him this question, ask him that question, ask him that question. Like, there's this real hunger. And uh, mm-hmm. when there's, when, there's uh, when someone asks, they need to, they shall receive. 
Yeah. And if they have any other additional questions, I'd be fine. Like, for example, maybe we can have a talk on Orthodox Christology specifically, right? Like maybe focusing on that or maybe maybe you maybe they might ask me to elaborate more of it like maybe sources etc well, i think i have provided sources but I'd, I'd happy to be back here yeah i i don't see a reason that we should leave it at this one session so uh this will yeah sure this will come uh... it would also give me a reason to talk about this topic it's <laughs> <laughs> like if i just made if i just made streams talking about the same topic like six seven times eventually people will catch on and say like what are you doing <laughs> But this gives me an excuse. I'm happy for that. Happy right. that. <laughs> then I will, I will supply you with a lot more questions in the near future, God willing. Mm -hmm. So, Brother yeah, David, sure. once again, thank you very much, man. I wish you nothing but thank the best you. of luck. The Lord bless you, to bless you and your family for every, every endeavor you have in your life. May you receive the best what the, the Lord has to offer for you. I mean, and likewise. Work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. Thank you.